Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. To kick off our enemy series, we've got with us today Leo Labresco Sargent, contributing editor of Plow, who also, in addition to her many other projects, writes the Other Feminisms Substack. Hannah Long, freelance writer, occasional film critic for Plow, and editor at HarperCollins, and Alistair Roberts, theologian, teacher at the Davidin Institute and the Theopolis Institute, and my husband. Welcome all. We are all here to talk about a very important uh, piece of culture that has come across our uh, transoms. I don't know what a transom is exactly, um, so to speak, this this summer, and that is, of course, the Barbie movie. So this is also the kickoff episode uh, of the podcast uh, for our enemy issue. Um, there are various ways, many of them basically snarky that I feel that this is appropriate. Um, the enmity between the sexes is one of the many things that's examined in the movie. Um, but I guess like one of the questions that I, I have, and I've basically spent the last whatever month arguing about this movie with various people, most recently my cousin, um, who is a Zoomer and sort of feels that she can zoomer explain culture to me, which she may be able to do, but she, like, basically, she thinks that there's a very simple moral to Barbie. I don't, I'm not so sure that I think that there is a moral, but it feels like everyone is trying to find a moral. So what did you guys think? Is there, what, what is this movie saying, if anything? Or is that the wrong question to ask? I think the movie takes a swing at big questions and has muddled and sometimes contradictory answers. In good faith, I would say, mostly. Um, and I think that's part of what's made it so popular. As Greta Gerwig said from the beginning, it's something that everyone knows about and everyone has a slightly complicated but intense relationship with. Um, but also, it's a movie that really lends itself to discussion. You want to see it with friends. You want to tell a friend to see it and then talk to you afterwards. And I think in some ways, if it had been a better movie philosophically, it would have been a less successful movie. I agree with that. Uh, I think that any sort of media that has enough contradictions in it that everybody can can argue about the small details is just built for virality. Um, and I guess possibly the most female thing about it is that it wants to please everyone. And so, you know, there's just, you could you could see it bending over backwards to be like, you know, yes, Barbie and Ken are not going to end up together, but it is okay for Barbie and Ken to end up together if, you know, you want to. It's all fine. Any way you want to live, it's really okay. We shouldn't just have one ideal of living. It's everything is. I mean, it's it's very incoherent in that way. Um, it's you. You can also kind of project your own ideology into it because of that. And or if you like really want to hate it, you can project all of the things you hate into it. Um, I don't think that it's that it's completely without a point of view, but because it is trying to be all things to all men, um, it, it's, it's got that sort of contradictory energy that, that I think people can grasp onto. And as Leah says, people, I think, respond to that. You might also think about the contradictions of the movie more generally. It's an exploration of the contradictions that are experienced by men and women more generally. And so I don't think that I'd read all of those contradictions as indications of incoherence. I mean, the message that we get towards the end is one of contradictions. You have to be thin, but not too thin, etc. That sort of feminist um, 
speech that's given, but even subverted it in various ways. I think it's an exploration in part of the contradictions, which for me made it a very interesting movie because it's exploring a reality that people have experienced from different perspectives and in different vantage points. And yet doing that in a way that's mindful of the different reads that are possible because it's a contradictory reality that people are experiencing. There is something about Barbie that represents something positive, also something that represents something corporate, something that represents the innocence of girlhood, something that represents the um, oppression of a certain ideal. And all of those things are explored within the movie. And none of them, I think, is given straightforwardly the final word. And I think that's one of the things that makes it a worthwhile movie to analyze. Yeah, I, there is a kind of like moment when the daughter has her kind of like speech, her Auntie Barbie speech, um, where you kind of feel like in a different movie, in, in a movie that was simpler, like that would be the viewpoint character in a way. Like no, Barbie would be the, the viewpoint character, but she would be the, the daughter would be the voice of morality or the voice of like the correct ethical stance. But that's actually not the case. Like the daughter is actually shown to be really kind of, you know, simple-minded in various ways like the kind of easy accusation of fascism and then like the um her kind of alienation from her mother which is just like pure preteen angst and kind of needs to be gotten over like she's not she's not the like the the voice of youth who tell the truth you know which is the kind of more usual hollywood thing yeah and i was definitely expecting it to go that way whereas it turns out that it's not a gen z movie Perspective-wise, it, even, even if Gen Z gets to have a say briefly, it's about millennial parents trying to figure out, okay, who are we? What are we now? Uh, how do we relate to our kids? What do we think about sort of these ideas of gender anymore? There was a great piece by Helen Andrews at uh, the American Conservative about the movie viewed through that lens of millennials becoming moms. But I do think it's a weakness of the movie that we don't get a real supported pivot for the daughter you know as she stays longer in barbie land she gets pinker and pinker and her hair is styled out of her eyes like mother always mother's always like but we never really get a sense she gives her kind of view to barbie to kind of shake her we don't get something that's returned to her in the same way it feels like she changes her mind because the script says and by now she's changed her mind and again it raises that question of what are people being converted to when they see Barbie, she she has a pull on them, a nostalgic pull, the kind of pull that people who are just absolutely like disarmingly sincere can have. But what is that pull towards? What is she sincere about? Yeah, I really appreciated that about your piece, Leah, the way you've focused on how there is no real clear, positive view of what femininity is. And uh and sort of it's about definitions. And I, as I was thinking about this and, you know, I was thinking, okay, so we have a movie comes out in 2023, sort of fitfully funny back and forth, lots of debunking bad ideas, sort of this doofus representation of the patriarchy. And then it all comes down to this sort of jokey dodge, avoiding actually defining what the question of the movie is, which is of course, not Barbie, but uh, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? Um, <laughs> whoa but, well done but you know they, these two movies are hand in hand in a way in that they they are both kind of about this question of what does it mean to be a woman what is a woman uh and they both kind of end with a joke 
and they don't actually define, I mean, the, the Matt Walsh documentary ends with, uh, I think the, the definition they end up with is like somebody who can't open a pickle jar without help. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, I'm like, okay, you know, that's a, that's definitely going to solve all the anthropological questions of the 21st century. And th this is what drives me a little crazy about the movie, because it's really pulled between these two questions of, is a woman something you are on a very deep level, um, something that's received, something that's given to you, which is where we get the thread of the movie that's more about mortality and the body and the potential to bear children. And then we have a parallel thread that says, a woman is something that's done to you. Um, this is why in my review, I talked about how much this parallels the trans theorist Andrea Long Chu's view of just women as being on the bad side of a power differential. And that's what that big monologue sounded like to me. Being a woman is being asked to do something that's contradictory and unfair. But if that's the case, then everyone should just stop, like get off the ride, stop being a woman, pick something better to be. Um, and I don't think that's the conclusion the movie wants us to land on. But since Gloria is kind of the pivotal force of the movie, I don't think she ever lands on a better answer. Mm -hmm. She, I mean, at the, at the very deepest level, like, the the movie does not end with closure it ends with like the, the problem of the movie is people who are being stifled or you know people who are not being allowed to be people um and the problem of not being allowed to be people not being allowed to be a man or not being allowed to be a woman even if you are in power like even if you are barbie and then later ken like neither of those are real. Those are both those are both disembodied and fake and kind of like cartoony ways to be. And it it's not that it's wrong because it's oppression, although it is oppression in the case of Barbie Land against men and then in the case of Kendon against women. It's wrong because it's fake. And so figuring out how not to be fake um, is kind of the the fundamental question of the movie. Um, and I kind of almost feel as though Greta Gerwig probably pulled a bunch of her punches against Mattel in um, in exchange for having the right to make the movie, I guess, um, because that felt like a very kind of underdeveloped, it should have been a lot more sinister than it was, basically, um, in my opinion. One aspect of the movie that really stood out to me is that this is another example of Gerwig's coming-of-age movies for women. And it's an exploration, among other things, of the relationship between the um, child, the girl, and the um, adult woman. So Barbie represents something of the innocence of a child's viewpoint as they imagine themselves as an adult, and the world that they project as the world that they imagine they will en enter into. And yet you have the more cynical perspective of Sasha, the, um, the daughter, who has not got any connection with that innocence and that childlikeness. She's, that inner child has been torn from her in various ways. She sees the world in terms of fascism, in terms of capitalism, in terms of these malign forces, and loses something of the perspective that Barbie represents. On the other hand, the mother is unable to um, she's dealing with questions of mortality and other things that are driving the plot, unbeknownst to us, by causing the problems for stereotypical Barbie. But the challenge of moving beyond that age of childhood, moving from the stage of being a girl to being a woman, and what that 
move represents for the relationship between girlhood and womanhood is, it seems to me, a question that Gerwig has been exploring in various ways in her other movies and is also at the heart of this movie. I'm not sure that I agree that the vision of Barbie kind of is ever innocent. Like, I, I think that there is, there's an innocence in the play that we see that um, Sasha and her mother do are doing with Barbie. Like, there is this sense of, like, okay, Sasha, you, you actually did have a good time. You're just sort of, like, retroactively politicizing it and, like, saying you always hated it. Um, and so that's real. But at the very beginning of the movie, there's the, you know, funny... Um, reference to uh, 2001, 2001, where like the, you know, uncivilized, un unrealized, you know, sort of six year old girls like see the Barbie and the Barbie causes them to like smash their baby dolls. And like that is a kind of like, you know, both in 2001 and in the movie, that is a kind of like you know, exit from Eden moment. Like there's, this is the like sort of promise of technology and or the promise of something that's not, that's not like a, an animal life that's beyond an animal life. And so the, the fundamental nature of like what you do with Barbie is you reject being a woman as being a female animal in any way. One and, thing that is, I think, relevant here is uh, how religious the uh the outlook of Greta Gerwig is on these ideas that apparently there were just so many things happening on set where they were doing a sort of jokey religious angle to talking about all these existential questions um where they would all go over to uh one of one of their their houses to watch movies on Sundays and call it movie church and like it would be a movie that inspired the 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 film and they're just trying to and that's more of a just like an artistic way of getting together um but uh apparently margot robbie also said that greta gerwig uh wrote a poem about barbie that quote shares some similarities with the apostles creed oh <laughs> and uh or actually that's a quote from gerwig at another point she says so barbie was invented first gerwig points out ken was invented after barbie to burnish Barbie's position in our eyes and in the world, that kind of creation myth is the opposite of the creation myth in Genesis. So once you realize that there's uh, some Genesis stuff going on, uh, it it becomes much more of a leaving paradise story. Uh, and the, the sort of the scales fall from Barbie's eyes and she realizes that, that she is going to die one day. And uh, it so there, there's a way of looking at it that way uh, but you can also see that, that sin already exists in the garden. It's already an oppressive place. Uh, you know, the Barbies are oppressing the Kins. It's just that she's not, she's not aware of this yet. Uh, so it, it doesn't map quite as, as neatly onto a religious uh, arc. But I think that uh, you can look at it, at it as, a way, as a metaphor for, for growing up. And so, so for kind of like becoming aware of your own flaws, becoming aware of your own uh, sinfulness and, de and desires and, and mortality and all of those sorts of things that kind of hit you when you're about 12. It ends up being uh, these sort of platitudes about what it is to be human, what it is to, to what the future is going to be like. You just end up with a lot of contradictions. And, you, and so it's, it's sort of your own sense of anxiety and contradictions being reflected back to you, which doesn't feel like the way that you would actually get out of anxiety. 
And it gets really close to a theology of subcreation and again, kind of dodges because Barbie is both someone who recognizes herself as a created being, you know, as someone who's who her creator and then others are telling a story through her. Uh, but then she explicitly says she wants to be the one who makes the stories, not who is the story for others. And her creator kind of, rather than explicitly blessing any choice of hers, is like, and my role as creator is to step back so you make a choice without my influence, right? So instead of it being this, you know, proper hierarchy rather than the kind of deranged uh, gonzo patriarchy that Ken explores of, you know, the creator and then Barbie and then some act of creation that Barbie makes in imitation of her creator and out of love for her creator to better resemble her creator. It's a creator who kind of steps back from the role of creator because it's a competitive world where she and Barbie can't both be creative at the same time. Well, I mean, she's a demiurge. That's the thing. Like, it, this is like, it's Barbie Gnosticism and she is not God. She is, she's the demiurge. And so it would be in fact wrong. Like anything that Barbie took from her like Barbie actually has to become a human being and be created in that sense rather than being the doll. Like she, and the, the interesting thing is that like basically everyone's job in this movie, Barbie and Ken primarily um, is to self-actualize. Like that's your job. You got to self-actualize and there's not really a self-actualize for what, like, although there is a kind of indication that like there might be a for what later on, like, um, you know, become Pinocchio needs to become a real boy and then maybe Pinocchio can start actually living a real human life. And so, you know, obviously it, it's not going to be cool for Ken to continue uh, as a kind of just adjunct to Barbie. He needs to like discover what he is by himself um, or for himself. But at the same time, those aren't really adult like self-actualize is not a real job any more than beach is a real job. And like <laughs> you, you kind of need, you need to like be aiming at a good that is beyond just become who you are in a kind of non with a, with a non-transcendent vision for that. The fact that it begins with the parody of the 2001 scene with the dawn of humanity, I think, the creation themes are very prominent within the movie itself. And you have something of the dawn of consciousness of humanity represented in the dawn of a new consciousness in the young girls who are formerly playing with childlike dolls and now are playing with an image of an adult, which is a bridge between worlds. There's something alien about it, just like the monolith at the beginning of 2001. It's an image that gives a new consciousness but it's a consciousness provoked by something that is at once um alien but also becomes integral to the um the self of those who have been formed by it it provokes aggression in the first people the first creatures to encounter the monolith and something similar in the first ones to encounter the the great barbie and it it does seem to me that that movement between the two worlds is um, explored in a number of figures. So you do have the the sort of failed Barbies. You have the weird Barbie, who's a sort of um, a figure who represents, in some ways, a sort of um, maybe 
a transition out of that childlike stage. A lot of it was, these are people who have not entered into adult sexuality. There's a sort of stalling and they can have a sort of romance, but there's no procreation, there's no motherhood and fatherhood. And for all the talk about matriarchy and patriarchy, there are no fathers or mothers. Pregnant Barbie was discontinued and the vision at the beginning is of destroying the babies. And so that movement into the realm of adulthood and its relationship with procreative relations um, is one that I think is worth exploring. And the messages there seem to me to be contradictory, but contradictory in, explore, in interesting and perhaps revealing ways. Yeah, you have the ending where you, and you could read it in different ways, but I, but Barbie walking into a gynecologist's office is at least a, an, an underlining of her physical embodiment and, and, and that this is very important. Um, and of course, it's also a joke about, you know, the, the unique uh, physical embodiment of a plastic Barbie. But, but to, to say that, uh, that there is something intrinsic in being a woman, in being a sort of person who goes to a gynecologist, I thought, oh, okay, this is actually, in a weird way, kind of a little bit more profound than a Matt Walsh uh, take on this. You know, at least there's no pickle jar joke. Yeah. I, so the thing that I really kind of, it, that felt satisfying to me about the movie was kind of the, um, it's a refusal of a happily ever after when the happily ever after was intended to be like this corporate feminist world where we're all girl bosses. And so the one thing that it sort of definitively refuses is the corporate feminist girl boss Barbie um, vision of human flourishing. Like A, that's not gonna work. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of solve the real world differences between men and women and make them not exist because you know, as soon as you step into the physical real world, construction workers are a little bit physically scary to, you know, little blonde girls. Like, that's just the, the nature of reality is, is not what the girl boss world needs it to be. Um, and, but the thing is that like, the, the, the main thing it seemed to say is like, there's not a way to solve relations between the sexes in the, in a sense that would like, give us a kind of like um, Kantian perpetual peace between the sexes. There's always going to be a kind of interesting struggle and enmity, but that's actually a good thing. Um, or at least the not enmity, but like the peace between the sexes is not going to be a kind of like, uh, I guess, neutral, um, a peace without striving or a peace without negotiation or just like a kind of everyone is just very straightforwardly uh, non-oppressed and uh, like everything and, 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 you know, the war between the sexes has been solved. Like the war between the sexes will not be solved, but you don't actually want it to be solved. Yeah, I think this is, Ross Douthat wrote a terrific piece that had this approach to it, which is about why he thinks that there needs to be a sequel called Barbie and Ken. Uh, that is that is more of a romantic story. One of the things he says is that there's an interesting parallel in Barbie to the ending of Lena Dunham's series Girls, another formerly feminist story with a reactionary subtext, which graced its anti-heroine with motherhood, but left her in a kind of quasi-matriarchal limbo. In each narrative, the one way that the current dissatisfactions of women and men can't be resolved is with the happy ending that even stories about the battle of the sexes used to take for granted. 
not a rearrangement of political power, but a romantic partnership, not one sex's rule, but both sexes contentment. And I think that somewhat speaks to the current drought we have of like real romantic storylines in major stories. I mean, you look at the Marvel movies and they're very desexualized. They, they, they're really, they don't even, uh, they barely throw in romantic subplots anymore. I'm not sure I, I should recommend all of it, but there, I, there was a, an essay, I can't remember the whole title, but it was about how like everyone's sexy, but there's no real kind of sexiness in movies. Uh, that, that everyone is these sort of chiseled gods. Uh, all, all these men look like they've been taking steroids, but there's just a, a sort of strange chasteness to everything. Um, you, you watch a movie like uh, The Mask of Zorro from the 1990s, and it's just like, this is a different universe. It's the amount of chemistry. Everyone is just much hotter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, people, people are pretty now, but they're not hot. This, anyway, this is an important sociological problem we need to solve this no it is an, an important sociological problem i think i mean i think that the a reason i was sort of thinking about remarriage comedies as you were talking and also about mcclintock obviously um <laughs> but i i do think that like an issue is that the the normal happily ever after wh where men and women come together in like a partnership where it's not fake is going to be fundamentally inegalitarian in certain ways. It's got like in order to be satisfying or in order to be hot. It just like it it has to be. And that's always going to be problematic. And so you have to have like people just off on their own personal quests and deferring the coming together until later when the political problems might be solved so that it's safe for them to come together. Um, and I just don't think that the political problems get solved. And I do think that that is actually the movie taking away the possibility of the kind of Kantian perpetual sexual peace is a really, really good thing. Um, and I'm going to quote from uh, a MUFO of many of ours, Edmund Smirk. <laughs> He's been doing basically nonstop Barbie memes, um, as you told me about Hannah. And this one is the standard, like Ken in his like, mink and his sunglasses it wasn't a celebration barbie it was a lament fukuyama lamented the fact that the lamented the fact that history was ending he detests the last man he detests alan the man without kenergy thumos luckily for him this ken is bringing theological conflict back okay this is this is my excuse to give my ken take since okay, i feel you've blown the door wide open that's a simpler ken take part of the reason people find ken's you know descent into the patriarchy and horses verse so charming um, is because it's clear it's not satisfying to him. And that's part of what makes it safe and satisfying for the viewer in a way the real threat of Andrew Tate is not charming um, and is not uh, inviting. Um, because both the script and Gosling are totally clear he is doing these things still to show he is strong enough and has an independent interest enough to merit Barbie. Um, and he like looks to her for approval while he's doing it. So it's and he's not happy when he's alone in his kingdom. Um, and I think that's part of aside from Gosling's natural charm, like that makes this so funny and then raises the question of are the things we ask of men similarly unsatisfying for men if women aren't a part of what being a man is, right? Like, and we see a lot of men going their own way or other things where I think there's a similar hollowness where there's a lot of effort to prove 
men don't need women for the sake of ultimately impressing women. Um, and the movie wears that pretty openly on its sleeve. And I think that's part of what makes that whole sequence charming. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Yeah, I, I think that the, the pairing between the negging and the simping in, in the patriarchal kens is a very familiar oh, pairing in a lot of these uh, yeah. types of guys, <laughs> shall we say. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Alistair, Hannah, and Leah after the break. I think it's important there's never going to be any resolution within Barbie Land. Barbie Land is a fundamentally childlike state, and so you have sibling rivalry that can be um, assuaged, perhaps, but there's not going to be a true resolution. To get a true resolution, you have to leave Barbie Land and enter the real world. And Ken never actually leaves that state fully. And so he's moved beyond his state of extreme simping, perhaps, but he's fundamentally a childlike figure. Um, whereas the movement into the real world that Barbie makes is a movement, I think at the end, a movement towards maturity and adulthood. And that promises a sort of resolution that could not be achieved within Barbie Land because Barbie Land isn't a place where you could actually have a sexual union. Um, it's a realm of childhood and childlike figures. And so you're going to have the sort of um, immaturity that is characteristic of that state. And it's not a bad thing. In its own place, it has its place. It just needs to be recognised for its penultimate status. It needs to be seen as something that you grow out of and move beyond. And you can have these sorts of childlike squabbles between siblings and between boys and girls, but ultimately we have to relate as men and women, and that's not going to be a, a matter of um, it's not going to be a matter of dominance of boys or girls. It's going to be a matter of men and women and mothers and fathers and husbands and wives working things out, which are a very different type. You don't have any fathers in the movie. You have Except the one for, father of yeah. the um, the da teenage daughter, but he's absent for most of the movie. You have the corporate boss, but he's a childlike figure as well in his own way. And in the same way, you have a few mother figures, and those mother figures, Ruth particularly, the creator, and also the mother who's struggling with her own motherhood, I think those are key figures. There's not a patriarchy really, because there are no father figures. And there's not really a matriarchy either. Um, it's a, a state of siblings in rivalry with each other. And so maturity involves leaving that state behind. And Ken doesn't quite make that move, but Barbie does. And there's a sense of promise that she might actually enter into an adult-like state and find resolution that you can never find within the realm of childhood itself. I think it's important that that Ken's idea of the patriarchy is also the idea of someone who is immediately leaving the state of innocence. Uh, that that you know the, the first thing they do upon leaving the garden is she realizes that she, is that she's going to die and that and that you know all of the all of the pain of the world comes upon her and then he decides to become oppressive immediately. Um, and so both of them are being 
have kind of like immediately immature reactions. She's a more mature character, so she expresses it more subtly. And he's also a supporting character, so you kind of don't get as much with him. Um, but the the reading where you could say that his that patriarchal kin is just the way the world is, I, I think that it's uh, it's not intended to be that way. It, it, there are you know the, all the women in patriarchal kin world are. Uh, you know, sort of exaggerated ideals of what men want women to be, uh, but there's there's not really marriage in that world either. Uh, like, a, a, they keep re referring to like, oh, will you be my like long distance, low commitment girlfriend or whatever it was. Um, I don't remember, and I might be wrong about this. I don't remember any specific like marriage archetypes in that Ken world either. No, there weren't. I mean, so the thing that Ken. The, the, Obviously, eventually, it needs to be the case that the Barbies and the Kens, in order to become real people, need to actually become embodied and then come back together. Um, but there is, I think, an intermediate stage, which is that Ken actually does need to figure out who he is without Barbie, not because men and women, not, not in a kind of like liberal self-realization way and not because men and women fundamentally can be each other without each other, because they can't, but because men do kind of need to have a thing that they're about other than women in order for women to find them attractive. Like it, the perpetual simp, it just is not, is not marriage material. Yes. Ken needs to come to Jesus moment too. Ken needs a career and he might need to like, I don't know, go to sea. So let's, let's talk about the come to Jesus moment he gets, because he doesn't get an encounter with his creator. He gets a dream ballet, uh, and we have not talked enough about that yet. When I heard there was a dream ballet in the movie, I was thrilled, because I think that is a way, oddly, of tackling a big question you don't have the words for. And when I saw it in practice, I was disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I thought it, the dream ballet that it came closest to was actually the fight scene in um, uh, West Side Story, like that the original West Side Story, not the new one. Like, there's no threat of death, and there's no threat of, like, there, there's no transition, exactly. And I think there's no choice made is ultimately the problem. Like, there is a choice where the Kens decide to stop fighting, but it's not clear why or what they recognize in each other. Um, and I think you were talking about kind of the the lack of sexiness in Marvel movies and a lot of film now, where there just isn't a tension that can be resolved. And I don't think there's enough of a tension between the Kens, or again, enough of a threat of violence, sex, whatever you want that gives the, the dance teeth, as it were. But it's also significant that Barbie and Ken don't have a dream ballet, even a more fully dream ballet on Ken's part, you know, that she doesn't have to explicitly participate in. And I think something like that, that's where the real tension is, would give more room for Ken to work something out in a bigger way. Yeah, there's this is a sort of intra-Ken conflict. Um, and that... Ultimately, you know, there is sort of a, a surface level conflict between the kins, but it, it's never really developed in a way where it feels like it's about anything. It's just it's just sort of like puffing their chest. It's sort of rooster stuff, but they're not even like in conflict over a specific Barbie uh, all that much. And it doesn't so it doesn't feel like the stakes are really there. Like Barbie, it, it's not a love triangle. It's never developed as a love triangle. And so it's just a distraction. It's a distraction that the Barbies have engineered in order to take back political power. That's right. And I think that there's a, a lack of self-awareness that the movie shows about the way the Barbies are behaving in that scenario, too, which is very manipulative. Um, like, I mean, it's 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 funny and it's, you know, it, it sort of feels like a 
you know, mid 2010s meme about, you know, taking back power from the men or whatever. But uh, viewed objectively, it's, it is very toxic behavior. It's, it's, it's extreme. It's like, it's also like, this is our, you know, this is our land. This is Barbie land. And we're taking back our Barbie land from these, in, from these uppity Kens. If the, the goal was to have a gender flipped sort of revelation where Barbie realizes that, that she is oppressing people, then uh, the manner in which she expresses that sort of revelation is just showing that she she's just becoming a cleverer oppressor. Well, because they're not persuading the Kens either. This is building to a democratic vote, and the goal is to sideline all the Kens so they forget to vote, not to think the Kens might be rational beings who would be moved uh, to reconsider their privileges. Kentianism, you might say. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, so the thing is, the thing that was so good about the movie is that it was a thorough, again, I just want to say, like, it's such a thoroughly satisfying rejection of girlbossism and of, like, consumeristic girlbossism. And, like, that needs to be, it that needs to be rejected so badly. I will say, you know, since I, I did drop the, the line that I was going to promote one of our books, we have this book coming out called Get Married. And, uh from Brad Wilcox, which is a slightly trolly title, um, but it, it's, it is kind of about this problem of men and women not getting together. And it you kind of have an idea of what that's gonna be. It, feel, it sounds like a conservative meme of like, oh, well, you know, it's, we don't, you know, we need to get beyond all of the liberal messages and everything, but it, it, it takes a, a slightly different angle than you would expect because it's talking about how uh, men and women, both men and women, are not marrying as much as they want to. Like, that, this is not about enforcing an old way of being on people and saying you should do this even if you don't want to to save civilization. It's saying that people are lonely and people uh, genuinely want to get together, but they're not getting together. And why is that so? What are the things that are preventing people from getting together? And, like, he, it's sort of this big investigation of a lot of different things. Um, but, and I, I'm not going to go too much further into it, but I was thinking about that as I was watching the ending of the movie, because I, I was just like, you know, it's like when you have your Barbie and your Ken doll when you're like 10, I'm just like, now kiss, now kiss. And they didn't. And I was disappointed, even though like, objectively, like, Ken was not at an emotional point where he was ready to be the man that Barbie deserves, or that you know that he's he's not a, the man he deserves really at that point so it, they hadn't really built them to that point but i i emotionally i was like i really care about him and i care about how he clearly like really wants to be loved and he wants someone to love him and it felt it it felt kind of cheap for it not to to go that direction and so there there was just a sort of sense of wistfulness as i was watching it and i was also thinking about the statistics in this book that i'd been editing and working on saying that, uh, you know, that the, there's such a tie between loneliness and anxiousness and sort of lack of direction uh, and also just being alone and not even looking for someone or, uh, you know, not knowing how to start looking for someone. There's just like, the, I think a lot of it is the, also the breakdown of um, the usual rules and rituals of dating. A lot of that is a lot more complicated now. Um, there, and, you know, I, I don't want to, oversimplify it because I think that he's he's very um, he, he brings in a lot of complicated reasons for why people why people are making these decisions and he's very empathetic to that he's not just saying this is you know all of the all of the liberal feminist women are making these choices and it's and it's bad or, or just saying you know one thing or another which he kind of would expect 
uh, I think he's very empathetic to a lot of that because he was raised by a single mother. And so that's that's part of where he's coming from. But uh, one thing he does do, um, which actually I, I disagree with, is that is that he, I think he 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 really wants there to be more representations of people getting together on on screen. And he thinks whenever there is is a, a representation of divorce on screen, uh, it's sort of Im implying that this is normative and that we you know need to lean, lean that, that direction. And I don't think that that's the case. Like I think divorce, uh, like the marriage story, the film Marriage Story, is clearly very anti-divorce, uh, which is also a Noah Baumbach uh, penned film, and it's just devastating. It's it's um, I mean it it makes it seem extremely unpleasant to go through that. Um, so anyway, that's the, just to kind of bring it all back together is to the, that I do think that they're, as, as you said about remarriage comedies, at le least they kind of had an expectation that this is how this gets resolved. And that feels like we really don't have that anywhere right now. I mean, I, the only thing that I can think of was something I watched last night, which was Only Murders in the Building. and. Uh, you could tell how much, little we see this now that I was getting emotional when uh, Martin Short kissed Meryl Streep. Oh, so, man. <laughs> I was just like, this is so romantic. And I thought, oh, man, okay, this we, we need to fix society. One thing we haven't really commented upon yet that I think is a very important theme of the movie is the relationship between women and aging. And so it's not just a matter of going from girlhood to womanhood, but what does it mean to face death, to face um, the experience of becoming an older woman? There's the very powerful scene of the encounter between Barbie and the old woman on the bench at the bus stop and the way that Barbie marvels at how beautiful the woman is. And she knows and she responds, I know. And there's something about that encounter with someone who's never experienced an old woman and innocently describes the beauty that she sees that I think captures a, a key theme within the movie. She's struggled with these thoughts of mortality and death and she struggled with these symptoms of aging, um, cellulite with her um, heel, heels and all these sorts of issues that have given her this sense of mortality and have reflected the experience of Gloria. And then she encounters an actual old woman. And then, of course, the encounter with Ruth later on in the movie also expresses what it means to be an old woman who's aged in a way that she's no longer at war with the world. She's not at war with her mortality. And Barbie is a war against mortality and a constant freezing in amber of um, womanhood at a stage of youth that never actually grows up, that avoids the experience of age, I think captures something about the experience of modern society more generally, where we struggle to grow old. We struggle to face the movement beyond the realm of childhood. And so we're always going back to the realm of childhood. Barbie itself is a um, retreading of familiar ground for people who want to look back to their girlhood and the toys that they played in that with in that context and the way that people dress up is an exploration of that childhood, recreation of that childhood. And that's not a bad thing, but there's also this turning away from the experience of growing old that is far more pathological. And I think Barbie is, among other things, exploring that as a far more positive thing than feared. 
And so Barbie's fears of growing old in a world that's sealed off from the reality of aging is allayed in part by encountering actual older, older women. I mean, I think that like the parallel there is that, like the thing that Ken, the thing that's wrong with Ken on one level is that he is kind of an adolescent or a post-adolescent, but he's never experienced lust. Like he's never, he, he's never had the opportunity to master himself because he's never had anything that was trying to master him. Like he's, he's, there's, there's the disembodiedness for him um, is a kind of like, he's, he's kind of not experiencing the results of the fall as Augustine would describe them in a way. And that's a problem for him. Like he needs to, the way that Barbie needs to like wrestle with the results of aging and kind of like in, in order to like be a full human being I wrote a piece um, just now for Angelus News about Peter Pan and Wendy, which was the new adaptation of Peter Pan from Disney Plus earlier this year. And it actually parallels a lot of these stories because it's about Wendy and she's very afraid of growing up, but she doesn't really have an idea of what it, sh of what it means to be grown up. She doesn't want to be like her mother. She doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want to have kids. And uh, she doesn't want to date Peter. Like the, the whole story doesn't really work because they remove these elements from it. They also really strip out the Victorianness, So it's just a whole mess. Um, but she has this, this sort of epiphany near, near the end of the story where uh, she's been struggling to fly because she doesn't really have happy thoughts. And all of her happy thoughts up until this point have been thoughts of childhood. And then suddenly she has this image of adulthood that is a happy thought. But the adulthood is being single, like learning how to, to uh, fly airplanes, learning to be like a suffragist, all of these sorts of like, it is sort of like the girl boss Barbie uh, montage and she never ends up with Peter. And, and so again, like it, it feels like we've, we've kind of lost the, the old forms of telling these stories and the, the profound lessons that they had without actually needing to tell us the lessons. That's so inherent to the story of Peter Pan, they, but they don't even need to tell us that because of the things people, the, the assumptions that are already there. This this movie has to have a big, like sub subtext-free, like um, speech about all of this because it, there are no forms anymore. There are no shared assumptions. Or there are so many different ones that kind of conflict with each other, and like you pick up little bits and pieces of them, but there's no like script that can be subverted cleverly with through like suggestive or you know there's something she wants to be to me but it's not my mother you know like the the, the sort of like um the the old ways that you could like uh imply uh answers to these things because there was something to play against in a way there's nothing to play against it except like the kind of deep dissatisfaction with the perpetual you know, dating that like you, you, you take your 16 year old dating self into your adult adulthood and then continue to do that for like years and years and years and years. And, you know, you like medicate your body so that you're, you know, as infertile as you would be if you didn't have any genitalia. And like, that's not satisfying. Like there's something about being a perpetually plastic, you know, 16 year old trying to preserve that body as long as possible that is not satisfying to women and what to do instead is just not clear um 
which is why I think there needs to be a second movie. I guess I have a few recommended things, which is watch the 2003 Peter Pan, which solves all of these problems. And uh, Andrew Peterson had a wonderful album some years ago called Light for the Lost Boy that is about a lot of these things, about sort of the fall from innocence, about the loss of childhood and how much that hurts, but also kind of this desire, this need to grow up and this need to recognize our own sinfulness and our own need for God and our vulnerability. Um, and then it ends with this sort of eschatological, um, glorious image of, of the, the kingdom. And it's, uh, I just think, very relevant to a lot of these concerns. Well, we will drop links to those in the show notes. Should we say something about the um, themes of capitalism, consumerism, and um artificiality well i mean this is what this is why i think that she was pulling her punches because obviously there was a lot of critique of capitalism in the movie but at the same time it was all kind of an ad um (laughs) and she and she had to you know not subvert it too much or mattel would not have let her make the movie which is you know i think there's a kind of like exhaustion critique of capitalism that gives people permission to participate in it. Um, and I think that's where this movie lands, where like, oh yeah, consumerism, it's a crock. It's all meant to sell things to you. It's all kind of collapsing. So it's fine. Um, and I've seen that, you know, in conversations with friends where people say like, well, you know, here we are in the burning ashes of capitalism. So nothing matters. And you can go take yourself to the spa if you want to. And it almost becomes a way of not examining consumerism with the assumption being that capitalism is in a slow collapse and almost the victory has already been won. Or that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So you might as well sort of be a Niburian, you know, whatever, participant in capitalism because it's nothing you do is going to be ethical. And so no, no actual choices that you, matter, that you can possibly make will matter. Yeah, if you wear the slave labor cotton but the shirt says lol capitalism then you're really striking a pretty powerful blow yeah there also does seem to be some recognition of the uh, the neoliberalism is social justice line where the world of barbie land is a very um manic socially manicured world where there's very carefully um arranged representation of various groups um it's very clear that um although there is an avoidance of any death, imperfection, things like that. It's very clearly intended to be inclusive, to be diverse, but it's precisely that because it's organized by a capitalist system and it's presenting the something of the marriage between that capitalist corporate vision, which is sexless in its own way, and a society that is very carefully um, that it's very much about surface appearances, about representation, and doesn't actually deal with some of the deeper questions that the film itself raises, the things that are unsatisfactory about Barbie Land, even though it has, for instance, a black female president and trans Barbie and things like that. I mean, you could very well imagine kind of like president of Raytheon Barbie, which our CEO of Raytheon Barbie, which, you know, we are at a position in the world where all of the CEOs of the five major weapons companies are women at the moment. And from the perspective of Barbie land, that's 
great. You know, any girl can grow up to make drones. And th there's not really a commentary other than that. And um, yeah, I do think that like, that is the dark, like the really dark and kind of, she, she did examine that. Like she did kind of gesture towards that, but I felt like it was under, um, it could have been a lot darker. We need Gerwig to make the next, the sequel to Oppenheimer, and we need <laughs> Nolan to make the gritty reboot of Barbie. No, here's, here's the question I have for you guys. Gerwig's under contract for two Narnia stories for Netflix. After seeing Barbie, which stories do you want her to tackle? Silver Chair. Yeah, everyone wants silver chair. I'm silver really? chair also. Yeah, it's yeah. So like that just seems that seems like a really natural one for her to do, especially because she could do like Jadis, like girl boss Jadis. I'd like silver chair and horse and his boy from her. Um, yeah, especially because horse and his boy is a story that's kind of nestled into a better known story. Yeah, and the the way she's been willing to take on Barbie and Little Women and kind of find a story. Uh, woven throughout a different story where you said, Helly makes me want her to take on Horse and His Boy. Hubble Glum could give a big speech in Silver Chair about the contra inherent contradictions in being a marsh wiggle. <laughs> Puddle Glum's speech, man, I really hope she does Silver Chair. That would be so excellent. Tom Baker does a great version of that, but that's by the way. Anyway. The Horse and His Boy would certainly be interesting in exploring the character of Aravis as a uh, coming of age story i'm not sure do we trust her with susan oh we don't trust her with the susan question no she would mess it up i think last battle is unfilmable anyway so yeah you can't you can't film fine. last battle and you can't film i mean the whatever the first three i thought were wonderful so like let's have those be canonical and then have her do horseman's boy and I think if you're worried about the problem of Susan in the last battle, you should remember that the plot revolves around a donkey wearing a lion's skin and becoming an object of awe, and that that works way better on the page than it's going to work looking at it. I think it's probably time to wrap us up. Um, you guys, thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye-bye. God bless. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Claire Stover and Mariana Wright about giving up all one's money.